0: Good morning, friends. Thankful to be with you again. Look forward to our our service every week, knowing that uh, God has a intention to accomplish certain things, specific things in our hearts as we gather together week after week. And I'm certain that uh, the Lord's going to do that again today. He's always um, seeing to it that that happens not amaze you that that the Lord seems to just connect our hearts to one another and to the Word um, by his spirit week after week it just uh, continually confounds me on how that so often happens uh, many times I have people come up to me after the service and say uh, that sermon was just for me it was like well, all of them are, but yeah, thank you. So <laughs> God is good that way. He seems to take the word of God and his word and apply it to the lives of his people without fail. Well, you know, we're, we're closing in on it. Uh, many people's favorite time of year, the Advent season, where we celebrate the coming of God uh, into our world as man. We call it Advent. And it seems like the perfect time of year to be looking at the text that we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be in Mark 11, that you just heard read to you. We've we've exited the first half of the book, Mark 10. Now we're moving into Mark 11, and this particular text is really the introduction to um, the final week of Jesus's life here on Earth, which is tied directly to why we have Advent season, right? (laughs) And that'll become more and more evident this next month as we celebrate the Advent every week here at Sun Valley. But by way of introduction, I want to just kind of uh, share with you some thoughts that will help you start to think about, I think, um, important things regarding this time of year. So. Mark is one of four Gospels, right, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of these four Gospels are focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Each Gospel establishes the identity of Jesus in a different way. Each Gospel is written for a specific audience. Each Gospel progressively tightens the aperture so that by the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem, every reader at least every honest reader who is, they're they're prepared to to see the glorious conclusion to the story. Every reader has been prepared to be confronted with a choice about the main character who is Jesus. All four Gospels do this in a unique way. Now listen to the importance of the text we're entering today. 25% of the Gospel of Matthew, 25% of the Gospel of Luke, 50% of the Gospel of John and over one-third of the Gospel of Matthew focuses on his last week on earth. This is an important time uh, in the life of Christ. This is an important time in in the salvation of his people. And so each of the four Gospels highlights this particular week. And so we need to really kind of... uh, along with the authors of these Gospels, uh, pay close particular attention to what they're saying, and in our case, we're studying Mark, and so we want to hear what God is saying to us through the pen of Mark concerning this last week, important week of Jesus' life. And so let's look at the context here briefly as we enter Mark 11, and as I said, this particular chapter begins the final week of Jesus's earthly life and ministry. His arrival in Jerusalem, which is what this records, uh, took place uh, on the 10th day of the first month of of the Jewish calendar. So the Jewish calendar begins with the month of Nisan, which is their first month. Like our January, there is Nisan. And on the 10th day of that month is when Jesus entered Jerusalem, which was A.D. 30. Uh, It was Passover week and it was Passover week every year at this time. The triumphal entry was on Monday the 10th, and the Passover, actual Passover celebration was on Friday the 14th. All right? There is a bit of debate among scholars regarding the days of the week here because it's not uh, objectively super clear in the Gospels on when this triumphal entry took place. Some think Sunday, hence Palm Sunday, Others think Monday, and you don't hear much about Palm Monday, Uh, but I actually lean in that direction. It makes more sense of the week, Uh, but that is the debate, and it's not really important because it begins and ends as it should uh, this particular week. They say, or they think, about 100,000 people attended this triumphal entry. 100,000 people were lining the streets of this parade as Jesus entered. Uh, And you think, man, that's a great number, but over 2 million Jews, extra Jews, Jews that didn't live in Jerusalem, showed up during this Passover week because it was required of all faithful Jews to be in Jerusalem during the Passover. And so about, the city grew about 2 to 3 million in size during this one week. 100,000 of them decided to go see what's going on with this guy riding in on a donkey, So that's what we have here. What we see here is divine timing. (laughs) And as divine timing goes, I, I want you to pay particular attention to this because it's a critical part of the story and significant impact on how you think about Jesus. As divine timing goes, Jesus now allowed all those around him to shout his name and his identity for all to hear. You recall that earlier in Jesus' ministry, he wouldn't allow anybody to do that. He says, keep it to yourselves. Keep quiet. My time has not yet come. Mind your own business kind of thing. But here, all of a sudden, he's allowing all this praise and adoration and proclamation of his identity to be freely shouted, spoken for all to hear. Why? Why the difference between then and now? between the years leading up to this and now this final week? And the answer is because Jesus was on a mission that had been planned in detail before time began. He came to seek and save the lost sinners, and the only way to save a sinner is to pay the penalty for their rebellion, and the only way to pay the penalty for their rebellion was to die in their place. All right? So Jesus knew that once all Israel knew who he claimed to be, there would be fierce and lethal objection to his claims, particularly from the religious elite. And this would cause them to plan and execute their scheme to kill Jesus, which we read about in John 11 and 12. And I'm going to flip over there real quick. You can go with me if you want. Otherwise, you can sit there and enjoy my reading. But listen to this. John 11:53. 53, uh, it says this. So from that day on, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, from that day on, the religious elite made plans to put Jesus to death. All right? Timing. Divine timing. Now, over to chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And then the very next day in in the Gospel of John, the large crowd that had been to the feast heard that Jesus was coming in Jerusalem, so they took branches and palm trees. All right? So you see this intricate plan unfolding right in front of our eyes to make sure that what was ordained to take place, which was, Specifically, the death of a Savior would take place on the Passover. So there would be no chance of any other day of this happening. Do you remember that they tried to stone Jesus once? Do you remember they tried to push him off a cliff once? Do you remember they tried to kill him three or four times? How come that didn't happen? Because of this. (laughs) Jesus was ordained to die in Jerusalem on A.D. 30 on the day of Passover for specific reasons, which I'll speak to in a moment. So this triumphal entry, they have this, this hated prophet, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even call him a prophet, uh, entering Jerusalem and all this fanfare, it spurred the religious leaders who hated him to extreme hatred, jealousy, and ultimately murder. More context. <clears throat> I'm helping you get a flavor here, okay? More context. Jewish law required that all Jewish families in Jerusalem to select a lamb and bring it home to live with them on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. The same day that Jesus entered Jerusalem, he entered with hundreds of thousands of other lambs who were brought to market, if you will, by sheep farmers to sell on this day to Jewish families because they knew it was law. And so each family had to buy one of these lambs and bring it home with them and actually live in their house with them until Friday of this same week, which was the day of Passover, which was the day of sacrifice. Uh, This is the picture we have in front of us, Jesus entering Jerusalem on this this wonderful triumphal entry day, uh, surrounded by hundreds of thousands of lambs. Picture that. The Lamb of God, surrounded by millions or hundreds of thousands of lambs of God. And so they were being herded into the marketplace, as I said. Now we have Jesus, the, capital T-H-E, Lamb of God, uh, being sacrificed on the cross on the very same time, at the very same moment, if you will, that all these other lambs were being sacrificed. This was why the divine timetable was so critical, to make a clear connection in the minds of all Jews and anybody who would be seriously pursuing Christ to see that he was intended by God to be the sacrificial lamb, the only one who would actually remove, take away sins instead of just temporarily cover sins. Finite, the blood of lambs was insufficient to take care of sin. Right? As finite beings, the blood of lambs didn't suffice for payment of an infinite offense. So it was necessary to repeat this yearly sacrifice with these lambs for temporary covering. The, the book of Hebrews explains this in detail, as does Leviticus. But in, remo- in order to remove the curse of sin permanently, which we all highly value if you're a believer, <laughs> To have your sin permanently removed from you, the the guilt of your sin, the necessity of payment for that sin, removed permanently from you. An Infinite One, capital O, needed to spill unstained blood to remove the infinite offense against God that we all deserve. We all deserve this penalty, don't we? But the, the Infinite One did something that all these finite lambs couldn't do. Took our sin Away permanently. And we read in the Old Testament that he took it to the deepest sea and buried it. As far as east is from the west, so far he has removed our sin from us, we read. How'd that happen? On Calvary. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 says he took our sin and nailed it to the cross. So the blood of the Lamb was. The lamb was sufficient and permanent. Listen to these verses in Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 4. For it is impossible, and the the author here is is waxing eloquent on the necessity of sacrifice, and he was talking about Old Testament sacrifice. That's what the whole book is about, Hebrews. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why? Because they're finite. I just explained that. Chapter 9, verse 12, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing what? An eternal redemption, a forever redemption, not something that has to be sacrificed for repeatedly year after year, as they had to do with the lambs of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so this brings us up to speed on why Jesus is entering Jerusalem on this day, why each gospel records it, why each gospel spends so much time in each of their gospels writing about this final week. All right, so let's look at our text again in Mark chapter 11. I hope you're there with me. I'm going to be referring to it throughout the sermon. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, those are little outskirts kind of bedroom communities to Jerusalem. Uh, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. So we have here, first of all, uh, uh, my first point is the sovereign king. We see this portrayed here at the front end of this first week. The story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem really has two sides to it that Mark reveals. The first side, of course, is a very humble picture, riding on a donkey. The second side, though, the other side, is, a, is gloriously majestic and, and fit for a sovereign king. And so we're going to begin where Mark does here um, in verse 1 uh, through 7 with this majestic view of Jesus' triumphal entry. It was spectacular from that particular angle. First of all, we see the sovereign king revealed in real time. Okay, let's review for a moment the chronology of this holy week, of this Passion Week, this final week of Jesus' life. Follow me. Monday is uh, (laughs) the triumphal Monday. Palm Monday, if you will. Then Jesus, after this triumphal entry, returned to Bethany to stay in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the man he had just raised from the dead a week earlier. So he went back to their house with his 12 disciples, and that's where they stayed during this week in Jerusalem. Tuesday, they go back into Jerusalem, and on the way, Jesus went up to a fig tree to get something to eat. Lo and behold, it wasn't in season, and there were no figs. And so Jesus curses this fig tree, and on the way back to Bethany that evening, this tree had withered. You remember the story? We'll get there in a couple weeks here, because it's recorded in Mark. And then after he cursed the fig tree on the way in Jerusalem, he went into Jerusalem and cleansed the temple. Remember? Whips and turning over tables and, you know, scattering chickens kind of thing. Wednesday. So Monday entry... Tuesday, cursing a fig tree, cleansing the temple. Wednesday, he had controversy with the religious leaders. Surprise, surprise. Uh, And Jesus preached a sermon on his second coming, and that was the day that Judas planned his betrayal of Jesus. So something clicked in his mind on Wednesday. Thursday, the disciples prepared the Passover meal, and they went to Gethsemane. Remember Gethsemane? Jesus spent time that night praying all night, and his disciples couldn't keep up in prayer. And they kept going to sleep, and Jesus was sweating blood, you know, tears of blood. Um, Thursday to Gethsemane, he was betrayed in Gethsemane, if you remember. He was arrested, and then all Thursday night, he went through mock trials with the religious leaders, ended up getting sent over to Pilate, Pontius Pilate, early Friday morning is where we come now where Jesus was condemned before Pilate was uh, sentenced to crucifixion and, of course, crucified and buried. On Friday, Saturday in the tomb, Sunday resurrected. You say, how do you get three days out, three days in the tomb out of that? Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's how. You get Friday evening, he's pulled off the cross, put into the tomb, all day Saturday in the tomb. Sunday morning, he rises from the dead, three days Friday, Saturday, Sunday, in the tomb. So there you have a little context. Now back to Monday, back to this entry uh, that Jesus sent his two disciples early Monday morning to go get a colt. They were in Bethany. He said, go to the next village. And it's interesting that he said the next village. I'm sure there were donkeys in Bethany. Why not grab a donkey in Bethany? To clearly communicate the sovereignty of this king. That's why. The, the, the divine providence of this king called Jesus, he sent them to the next bedroom community called Bethphage to pick up a colt of a donkey to be the mode of transportation for Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. This small part of the story, sending these two disciples to Bethphage, uh, demonstrates some integral elements to the true identity of Jesus. It demonstrates his omniscience, his sovereignty like he demonstrated on numerous occasions before. Remember when he first met Nathaniel, he says, I watched you while you were under the tree. He, he, he knew Nathaniel through and through, a man he had never met. And remember when Peter was concerned about paying taxes, Jesus said, don't worry about paying taxes, go catch a fish, the first one you catch is gonna have enough money in its mouth to pay our taxes. Uh, that seems pretty clear to me. What's going on there in terms of the sovereignty and omniscience of God in Jesus? And then here again, he tells two disciples, unnamed disciples, to go into Bethphage and pick out this donkey who's tied to some railing by some house in this town. I mean, I give clear directions when my kids were younger to go to Walmart and pick up a gallon of milk and they come home, couldn't find the milk. It's like, think about the details of this. Jesus was demonstrating his omniscience. Um, He he, he sent these two to secure transportation for Jesus into the, the city of Jerusalem, and the details would require amazing divine intervention. So the moment we see Jesus turning towards Jerusalem on this final week, we begin to see without question, without uh, obscurity, his majesty and authority shining through all that he did. Um, God had ordained that there be in just the right place at just the right time, this unridden colt of a donkey where Jesus told them it would be to go get it, to untie it and bring it. And when they ask, why are you doing that? You can tell them the Lord needs this young colt. Which is, it happened exactly in that way, in that fashion. And so we see in real time the sovereignty of this king shining through in the moment. But it's also shining through in the prophetic time, which is our next point. It's interesting to note that during his entire ministry, listen to this, during his entire ministry, Jesus walked everywhere he went, except when he rode on a boat. We never see him riding a horse. We never see him in a cart or in a chariot. He walked everywhere until today. He decides to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. He'd walked in Jerusalem hundreds of times. But today, on this occasion, he wanted to ride a donkey, the colt of a donkey. So everywhere else in his entire life and ministry, he walked, even on water. When he could have taken a boat. Why is this so important that Jesus ride on a donkey on this day? There's got to be a good reason for this, and lo and behold, there is. Um, it's this riding on a donkey, the cult of a donkey specifically, uh, is a highly symbolic gesture concerning Old Testament prophecies, expectations, and illusions. It's spoken of specifically in the Old Testament. Hundreds, if not thousands, of years before this triumphal entry. The events of Jesus' life unfolded just as Scripture predicted, and Jesus had explained all these things to the disciples. It's abundant proof of his divine nature. Only God can pull this kind of thing off. Listen to one of the prophecies concerning this day, the triumphal entry, from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. 500 years before Jesus was born. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Sounds interesting, <laughs> if nothing else, is, doesn't it? <laughs> Not only did the mode of trans- transportation demonstrate the humility of Jesus... And by the way, the next time he shows up, it's not going to be on a donkey, right? It's going to be on a a white horse, a war horse, really, with a host of armies behind him. First time he came to serve, second time he's coming to rule. But he, he rode in this time on a donkey to demonstrate his humility and to associate himself with a few important things from the Old Testament that every Jew would know about. The mode of transportation identified him with his ancestor and forefather, King David, and his son, King Solomon, who both rode donkeys in royal procession. All right? In Genesis also, we see a prophecy that the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah, the royal line of Israel's kings. What what tribe was David from? Judah. All royalty came after King David from the tribe of Judah. Hence, have mercy on me, son of David. The royal line, riding in on a royal beast. The two disciples were told to say the Lord needs this. Jesus knew that he needed to ride into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey. And when he did ride in on this donkey, it was a declaration, a public declaration of his kingship And the fulfillment of Old Testament illusion and prophecy. So that no one, not even in the 21st century, could mistake this as something random. There's no way this could be random. So Jesus did all this to fulfill the prophecy concerning the Messiah. The sovereignty of Jesus is seen all over this story as confirmation of his divine identity. I hope you can see it clearly. I I hope it burns your heart in recognizing it. But he wasn't just a sovereign king. The second side of this is he was a humble king entering. After Solomon, all of Israel's kings, all of the kings from the line of Judah, started riding war horses through town because this is what surrounding kings did. They thought it was more impressive, and it is to the human eye, isn't it? But humility is something that God values, which is why God had the kings as they began riding in on donkeys, because God values humility, more than strength, more than power. But by the time uh, the, the, the third in line after Solomon, uh, they began to take up the traditions of secular kings and ride war horses into town. That was the thing to do from then on out. But as we read through Scripture, in the narrative accounts at least, uh, and even in the epistolary accounts, we see this is a dominant trait of the Messiah, humility. Everywhere you read of the Messiah, you hear humility spoken of. The Messiah's Savior is a humble being. This is why Jesus is called gentle and lowly. This is what Paul made a point of in Philippians chapter 2. The humility of Christ and why we ought to be humble towards one another. And consider each other as more important than ourselves. Because this is what our Savior is like. This is what our King is like. This is how we ought to be. Humble and lowly. Considering each other as more important than ourselves. Notice that. Jesus didn't ride in on a horse. He rode in on a donkey. And he did this to demonstrate his humility. Zechariah's prophecy said that the king would be humble, and Isaiah's prophecy said the king would be humble and bring peace. And so when Jesus arrived, he brought peace to those around him, which he said in John 14, my peace I bring unto you. Jesus is unlike any other king who has ever lived. He didn't ride into Jerusalem on a white horse with his captives trailing behind him. No, he rode in on a donkey. And not just a donkey, a foal of a donkey. This perfectly portrayed his position as Messiah, as his person, as the Prince of Peace, humble, lowly, gentle. Accessible. I want to read you a quote from a commentary concerning this text. This, is, this was written by Steve Lambert, this quote. It says, in no other manner are the differences between Muslims and Christians more sharply contrasted than in the difference between the characters and legacies of their prophets. Perhaps the contrast is best symbolized by the way Muhammad entered Mecca and Jesus entered Jerusalem. Mohammed rode into Mecca on a war horse, surrounded by 400 mounted men and 10,000 foot soldiers. Who greeted, uh, those who greeted him were absorbed into his movement. Those who resisted him were vanquished, killed, or enslaved. Muhammad conquered Mecca, took control of its new religious, political, and military leader as, as its political and military leader. Today, in t- Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, Turkey, Muhammad's purported sword is proudly on display. Jesus, on the other hand, entered Jerusalem on a donkey accompanied by 12 poor disciples. He was welcomed and greeted by people waving palm fronds, a traditional sign of peace. Jesus wept over Jerusalem on that day because Jews mistook him for an earthly secular king who was was to free them from the yoke of, of Rome, whereas Jesus came to establish a much different heavenly kingdom. Jesus came by invitation, not by force. A little different, don't you think? Yeah. Uh, one brings eternal salvation. One brings eternal damnation. And it wasn't just a donkey, by the way, to establish his humility. It was a borrowed donkey. <laughs> I mean, it's bad enough riding a donkey, but having to borrow it? Come on. What kind of king are you? Everything Jesus did was based on his humility, like leaving heaven. But he he was poor. He was born into an average Jewish household in Nazareth, up in Galilee. His family was not rich. They were the working class, and at an early age, his father died, and so Jesus had to take up the mantle of the business. That's why he's called a carpenter but he borrowed everything he used. To cross the Sea of Galilee, he rode in a borrowed boat. Um, To secure a room for the Last Supper, he borrowed that room. He borrowed a tomb in which to be buried. And today, on this triumphal entry, he borrowed the colt of a donkey. Very unimpressive. Isaiah speaks of this, doesn't it, in Isaiah 53. Isaiah told us we wouldn't be impressed, that we would esteem him not. The prophecy in Zechariah makes a very close connection between riding on a donkey and humility. He just comes out and says it. Riding a donkey, humble, was Zechariah's next word. And what was the, the response of the crowd to this situation? They threw down their garments for the colt bearing Jesus to walk over, signifying submission to this humble king. They also ran and cut palm and leafy branches to cast before him and to wave, which signified peace. Peace and submission, humility, all things that we see in our relationship to Christ. They, would, they were shouting, Hosanna, which is a bit ironic. You know what Hosanna means, save now or save me, I pray is what Hosanna means. And this particular idea of Hosanna comes from Psalm 118, which has some messianic elements to it. Listen to verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 118. Save us, we pray. The same words they were yelling at Jesus when he entered Jerusalem. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Another statement they were yelling. Towards Jesus on that entry, that triumphal entry, we bless you from the house of the Lord. Even though Jesus is the true king of Israel, he isn't what the people of Israel had anticipated. Even those shouting, this is the irony of it, even though shouting Hosanna thought he was coming to save them in a different way, save them from Rome. Save them from the invisibleness of Israel at this time on the world scene. They had always thought that the Messiah king would come and vanquish all their foes. They thought he would set up this eternal kingdom starting immediately in Jerusalem and restore the the glory days of King David and Solomon. But what Jesus did was to vanquish the most, most dangerous and strongest foe, which is sin. Not Tiberius the emperor, not Pontius Pilate the governor. He came to vanquish sin which had ruled in the human race since the time of Adam and Eve. He came to destroy that enemy. See, the kingdom that Jesus established didn't have palaces and armies, but it was an eternal kingdom. This massive crowd, as I said, estimated over 100,000, welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, throwing their cloaks, throwing everything they could in front of Jesus. All this, of course, typical of the reception of royalty Uh, The communication of submission to a monarch, the the palm branches symbolized joy and victory. They were all in, except they misunderstood who he was. The crowd's enthusiasm came from all that they knew of Jesus. Many had heard of his miracles, including raising dead people back to life like Lazarus a week earlier. I mean, who wouldn't want as their king someone who could raise their, their killed armies back to life? That'd be kind of discouraging to an opposing king, wouldn't it? Every time we kill one of them, this king of theirs raises them back to life. Every time they get hungry, he makes food out of nothing. The two things that were the biggest problems on any battlefield in ancient times. Food and dying soldiers. (laughs) Jesus could handle it. And so that's what they were enthusiastic about. The problem was, again, like I said... These folks were not shouting out and praising Jesus because they believed in him and and wanted the forgiveness he offered and the salvation he brought. That's not what they were thinking about. They were interested in the prosperity and freedom that their Messiah, their rendition, or version of the Messiah would bring, hoping for this new dominant kingdom. When Jesus didn't deliver on those promises, their enthusiastic support for Jesus turned into rejection. And hostility, and we know how the outcome goes, don't we? We've read to the end of the story. On Monday, they were singing his praises. On Friday, they were shouting, crucify him. The same crowd. What happened? <laughs> um, it, they rejected their own Messiah. It says in John 1, 11, that Jesus came into his own, and his own did not receive him. They thought even though he was humble and lowly, they thought that since he was from the family of David from the tribe of Judah, the rightful heir to the throne, certainly he's the one. And so they shouted, save us, save us. If they could have completed the sentence, they would have said, save us from Rome, not save us from sin. And here I think is a poignant and crazy ending to the triumphal entry. Not the palace, but the temple. (laughs) Listen closely to this, friends. As the crowd grew in size, volume, and intensity, and enthusiasm, they all expected this parade to end at the palace or the governor's mansion. That's where the street was lined going, to the palace and the governor's mansion. That is, after all, where kings go. They were certain that Jesus was going to go there and toss out the bum and set up his own throne and sit on it that day. But when Jesus took a turn, the crowd is lined up this way. Jesus turns right and goes to the temple. The crowds down that way, heading all the way down to the palace, were going, Where's he going? What's going on here? And in that moment in their heart, things began to turn against Jesus. Not on Friday when the chief priests and the the rest of the uh, Levites were spreading rumors and hatred amongst the crowd. It happened on this day on the triumphal entry is when their hearts began to turn against him, including Judas. Jesus made a wrong turn. Um, But when he did turn down that street that led to the temple... The, the the crowds became disappointed and by the time Jesus arrives at the temple verse 11 tells us that it was him and his disciples look look at this he went it was late after he got to the temple and he left with the 12 after 100,000 down to 12 talk about a fall in the polls This was it. Jesus was standing there with the same 12 that he was in Bethany with the day before. They must have gone, Jesus, you took a wrong turn. You took the wrong turn. I I guarantee you, some of his disciples were thinking the same thing. Which is why they all took off when he got arrested. (laughs) Verse 11 is one of the most anticlimactic verses in all of Scripture. Look at it. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, hmm, this party kind of died. Let's go back to Bethany. (laughs) This is what happened. Um, You see, Jesus um, communicated something powerfully by turning to the temple. Just when the expectations were at a fever pitch, this humble Jesus communicates with his approach to the temple, instead of the governor's palace, that his kingdom was not about takeover, power, military might or dominance. It wasn't about that road to the governor's palace. No, it was a spiritual kingdom that would impact far more people than any physical kingdom ever would. Millions and millions. We're sitting here today because Jesus turned right to go to the temple. So, as we always try to do here, we want to take this passage to our own hearts. How do you view Jesus, you here this morning? Are you hoping for a Jesus who will make your life easier? Who will make much of you like the Jews were hoping? Are you a little bit upset when Jesus takes a turn towards the spiritual, towards the less exciting? You see, Jesus' plans rarely are what we hope for. Unfortunately, there are some who come to Jesus, at least they say they come to Jesus, because they think he's going to produce something spectacular in their lives a better job better family better house better whatever they they expect Jesus's entry into their lives to be all the way to the mansion and when he takes a right turn there's massive disappointment for many who misunderstand the salvation that Jesus offers See, Jesus came humbly, serving, moving towards the goal of his life, which was his death on Calvary's cross. He made it all the way to Jerusalem after three years of ministry so that he could die where many prophets before him had died. What's our view of Jesus? What's your view of Jesus? Are we as confused as the Jews during this triumphal entry? Or do you have a clear picture now that Mark has written his gospel and you've sat here and seen the true identity of Jesus, your Savior? Let's pray. Father, we certainly. Are guilty of misunderstanding Jesus and His work in our lives. Sometimes the discomfort um, of the direction Jesus takes us <clears throat> causes us to wonder if we've followed the right Savior. I ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, in the hearts of each and every person here, you would confirm, affirm your true identity, that you were sovereign king, humble and gentle, riding on a donkey to accomplish the purpose for which you came, the forgiveness of sin and the restoration of relationship. God, move our hearts in this direction on the true entry into Jerusalem, Jesus' true entry into our hearts. I pray that we would follow closely. It's his name we pray, amen.